Welcome to Sound Lore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we talk about recent scholarship, ideas, current happenings, and many other interesting tidbits. I'm Amanda Luke. And I'm David McDonald. Today, we continue our conversation between Dr. Alicia Lola-Jones and Dr. Portia Maltzby about the IU Soul Review, the National Museum of African American Music, and her recent collaborations with Carnegie Hall. You know, we, we just celebrated an anniversary of one of the institutions that you established on this campus, the Soul Review. And as I hear your story and uh, the way you were allowed it, allowed or uh, you were given space to guide yourself as a scholar, as a researcher. I mean, you have the attributes of what a researcher uh, usually has, which is someone who is curious and follows the curiosity and hopefully they will encounter mentors who have the resources and network to support that curiosity. Um, as the founder of the IU Soul Review, how did you identify talent? How did you identify folks, uh, especially knowing that there weren't these sorts of curricula in the country to train people in the musicianship and the business of uh, soul music? How did you find the, the, the talent? I think being youthful and uninhibited and, mm. you know, open. Um, this is one reason that I realized that I, could, I, I went to undergraduate school with the notion of being a concert pianist. Mm. And then, I mean, I was, I was pretty successful in the concerts and things I did. And, but I realized that I'm too social, I'm too outgoing, and, and, I, and I'm too involved in community to have a life that's so isolated. And, and by so having the personality that I did, to go directly to your question, allowed me the freedom to just explore. Explore, I use campus, ask questions. So I asked, I said, where do the black students hang out? I've never been to IU before, you know, and other than down for the interview. And, and, I, and then I, and then and I would have youth on my side. I wasn't that much old, a couple of years older than my students. And so I went, to, I found out where they hung out. I did what they did. I had the same interests they had. I loved playing big whist. I liked going hearing music on the weekends and all of that. And, and I was told that they congregated in this, uh, the Kiva, in the, which was in the union at that time on the bottom floor every Wednesday. Then I was also told if I walk in the union into the, the, uh, the uh, southwest part of the union on the main floor off the bowling alley, I would see black students playing big whist. I said, okay, and that's what I went. I went to the, to the Kiva, and then I got to know two or three people, and, and I said, they say, well, we can have you explain this ensemble that you're developing when we take a break, because they have a DJ and all of that. And so then I explained it, and um, then I go over there playing Big Whist, and then I started playing Big Whist with them, and then started talking about the ensemble, where I was from, and what I was trying to do. And, uh, this was in the fall, fall of uh, 71. And, uh, and then, uh, then I had two or three who said, oh yeah, really? And they were fascinated. You mean if, if, if we get this off the ground, we can get credit for playing the music we love to play? I said, yes, you can get credit, not just for playing the music that you love to play, but for learning about the music you love to play and learning about the business side 
of the of, of that music that you love to play that makes music for everybody else except for you, the performers. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and, that, and so that, that they were fascinated. And I think because I could easily relate to them and did what they did, and then slowly they, they say, what do we do? I say, well, so I got a list of what you play. And then, then the word starts spreading. So once you hit a core group of people, then they knew everyone. And largely because one of the reasons Herman Hudson wanted me to develop the ensemble, once he figured out what I did and could do it, these students put together their own talent shows a couple of times a year. And, and I mean, just super talented. And so they knew how to do some things. And he said, we got too much talent that's untapped, that needs to be, is raw, that needs to be developed and, 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 and opportunities you know, provided for these students to do these things and to see a bigger world than what they're seeing now. That was Herman's uh, uh, vision. And then, so I began to speak to them in those terms. If we get this off the ground, we'll be doing shows, we'll travel, we'll da da da. And so I had confidence that we could do it. So I think part of my success was going out speaking with confidence. It was not, well, maybe, uh uh-uh, no. If we get on the ground and do it together and make it work, Mm. we'll have a course for credit. And then we will build an ensemble with some reputation. We will get to travel. Because I, you know, I was used to doing that myself, so it wasn't new. I mean, we had an age, and we had an agent in Wisconsin. We went all over the place. And we were very popular. So mm-hmm. I knew once, once we got it together, right, and you had some quality product to show. And the timing was good. At the time, Black Studies is developing, and I could see the audience. I could saw what we did at Wisconsin and how we had this money to bring in people and groups and you know, all kinds of creative expressions. So I had that background coming to Indiana, knowing possibilities. I was involved in those possibilities at Wisconsin. And I knew a lot of the undergraduate students and uh, and I knew a lot of the grad students, mostly were in the schools of business. So then they were about doing things through lens of business. Wow. And so, so it worked. So, you know, by within, I would say, August, September, I would say around the end of September, but I'm wanting to start with what I've got. I don't have to have a full complement of everything. I don't have to have that. Just give me a few. Hey, I'll take whatever I get and make something out of it. And so I started mm-hmm. with one male singer, but I did have a rhythm section. That was easier to do because at that time, many of the, I mean, there were like two bands already operating you know, themselves, ad hoc, hmm. that's why they found this fascinating. You mean we can do this, but get credit for it too? And get in travel? They play local, you know, the local places. And so, so, I, so I had almost, when I say a ready-made band, instrumentalists who could play the music or could pick it up mm-hmm. easily. Mm-hmm. The challenge were with the singers. So we had one male, and then I had then two females came, and then they brought another female. And then, then, then horns. Then, of course, uh, horns were really big at that time. Funk was emerging, and and uh, and so then a horn player came, and I said, "Can you give me some more horns and trumpets and da da da?" So they knew each other. So again, they were affiliated with these different bands. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's what happened. So they came over out of curiosity, and they met me, and I just sold them. They bought my can of goods, and I said, <laughs> "If we get this working right, hey, the sky's the limit." And fortunately, we were able to put together in was it four months or so with no rehearsal space other than you know the music school we had found a little room in there, 
And we had no equipment. We did bring in their own and borrowing amps from the people in music, David Baker and two other faculty members, a percussionist. So I, so I was pretty good at that. We were good with that. And then midway through, I said, hmm, I think this is really going to work. And then once we did the, the Christmas dinner dance with black faculty, it was all over. They I said, wow, because we had a show. You know, I mean, it wasn't as elaborate as it later became, you know, because I'm not a choreography, I'm not a stage person, but I'm a very focused music person. But I did know I need to have this again on my vision is James Brown. So that's always in the back of my mind. And this is where you allow the creativity of your students to play, to play out. Mm -hmm. So I said, we need choreography. So yeah, we can do our own choreography. So they were like little beavers, eager beavers, ready to do whatever. So we jumped in together. I said, I can't do this. So I need you to do this. So I was always honest about what I could and what I couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And I said, so I need you to do this. We didn't have any. I said, we're going to do this dance. We need some outfits. They said, oh, I saw, I saw. So we had about three or four seamstresses led by really one in particular. And then I said, hmm, okay, we'll get some little outfits and, and we'll make some. And then as others, we'll just go to the store. You can go to the mall and find something you like that you can just buy as a group. So that's how we functioned for our first performance. It was ad hoc we put together, but everybody in there as a community. I love and, it. And so they were blown away. The Black Falcon staff, first time having a live band. And the band was tight. It mm -hmm. was tight. And... Um, and we didn't have an organizer brother in the music school and that he could play. He could play like a Jimmy Smith. He had his own B3. So he, I mean, I mean standard B3. A Hammond B3. And he had a Hammond B3. I had a Porter B3, but mine was in, 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 in Wisconsin. Hmm. So he brought his Hammond B3 and we didn't have any sound equipment at that time. And, and the guy over the, uh, at that time it was called the, uh, I forget, but they provided the sound for everybody who needed it, microphones and sound systems. And he came, he ended up being my neighbor once I got home. And, uh, and he came and he, he loved the group and he did us a makeshift sound system for that event. And he came early, set it up. I mean, so we had a team of people who really wanted us to do well. Mm. And that was it. So once we did that show, the rest was history. And then although still going into the second semester volunteer, I said, okay, this is successful. And they, they got really, really excited. And so in that second semester, we ended up having some gigs. We played for some, some couple of, couple of uh, national organizations came to campus and they had heard about the Soul Review. So we performed for them. We really didn't have any real, real outfits, but we were okay. So that summer, I said, we ready to roll. And I told Herman, Dr. Hudson, I said, yeah, we can, we can push this forward now. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that summer we spent, uh, I mean, starting in that spring, writing up what we needed to get it submitted as a course. And then next year, it was a course in wow. fall of 2000, I mean, fall of 1972 was a course. Mm -hmm. And that's when it, it that's when it took off, and and then people started showing up for auditions. I love it. I you know I I have so many questions, but I, I got two more because I I know your time is precious, and maybe we can have a part two at a later date. But as you I'm you know as a music researcher, I'm thinking what else was happening at this time that you're emerging and founding this this institute, and I'm thinking of other folks elsewhere who 
were in this moment of African-American studies and cultural expression, um, but did not have the support of their schools of music. In fact, they had to hide their participation in quote unquote vernacular or popular music from the administration. And so to have that structural support uh, means all the difference as, as we are trying to make interventions in the research and practice of culture. Like, that uh, I can think even in HBCUs of the time, how it was prohibited to do vernacular music um, because of the demands of dominant culture, because of what the marketplace was requiring. And, and so um, I guess my, my next question is, um, as I look at the folks who come through the IU Soul Review um, and who have worked with you, I mean, you have folks who are, touring musicians and folks who are sidemen and frontmen and grammy nodded uh, individuals um what what does this um track record tell us about exposing young people to touring and to the the um rigorous performance of popular music like what what do we learn from serious participation in uh, something like an IU Soul Review. Uh, and I asked this question as a person who came through um, Duke Ellington School for the Arts. We had show choir and participating in that show choir for me opened up so many possibilities and what it meant for professionalism, consistency, presence, showmanship, uh, doing things consistently over and over again as though it's the newest and hottest thing. Um, and also, you know, creativity, collaboration, which you, you have emphasized. What have you seen at, at this in this season of your career looking back about the impact of being involved in this sort of uh, performance uh, uh, exploration in a university setting? Well, I saw it, it had an impact on the discipline of the students. The same points you just made about yourself being in the Duke Ellington School. And um, I was very much a stickler for perfection. I and mean, it's okay to make a mistake. So I didn't worry about that. Being a concert pianist, it was okay to make a mistake. What I found to be more significant was how quickly can you overcome that mistake without revealing you made a mistake. Mm -hmm. So that so I never worried about whether my concerts or performances were going to be perfect. I didn't worry about it. I knew I always knew where I was in the piece. This is where theory played a role for me. I understood my music from a theoretical framework. Mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't go in playing piano, memorizing by rote. I didn't do that. I understood the relationship between all parts of the song, where I was in the song at a given moment. So it didn't matter if I I could recover. So my point with the students was, you know, we're gonna strive perfect, perfect per, for perfection, but I don't want you to get hung up if it doesn't come out perfect. The key is having the discipline to quickly make the correction and keep going that no one knows you made the mistake other than yourself and your group members. Mm -hmm. So I think that was, and then the other was having confidence in oneself, really believing, you know, when I saw him kind of shy, come on, I said, no, 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 come on, let's, let's put it out there. 
And, and I think above all, what they really learned that I'm most proud of beyond the music, perhaps more proud of than the music, was how well they performed academically. Because for them, I think by my imposing grade point averages to be in the ensemble, a higher grade point to travel, and I mean, I stuck it to them to travel, that, <laughs> that, uh, that it, it just showed them how they could rise to the occasion. Not only how they appeared on stage with finesse, we talked about that. We talked about not becoming so, when you're successful and everybody's clamoring over you and telling you how great you are, blah, 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 that it goes to your head that you forget who you are. You, you never, you always are who you are. That's in the moment. Like what I do, I was telling you, what I was doing was in the moment. That's what I wanted to do. I wasn't thinking about what impact it would have or I would be famous or whatever. I never thought about that. I was busy doing. And then when I completed that project, I was ready for another challenge. But I think for the students, you know, to see how many of them who came on, 90% of them, like really about 95% of them are on the group's program. I would go to the group's talent show, and that's when I would see the talent. And, uh, and so they were supposed to be, you know, first generation. They didn't really know anything. They didn't have, you know, a lot of guidance in coming to IU. So the Soul Review became everything for them, even those pledging. And I, because I was dead against what I saw happening with the pledging thing. And I said, no, no, no. So I, so I had, and, and the, uh, and, and, and all the Greeks knew me well, you know, and I'm a Greek too. I'm similar. And you're a Greek, yes. And so yes. I knew, I knew, I said, nope, nope, we, we, not here. And so they were happy. So they, <laughs> they come to a rehearsal and then, and then I had, I would, sometimes I didn't get home until nine o'clock or 10 because I had, they studied. They stayed and studied. I say, you tell them you over here work with me. And so every, they all knew me, the Greeks did. So they, didn't, they respected me. So they didn't kind of, they didn't question. But they said, well, I, was with, I was with Dr. Malksby and then that was that. Was that. Mm-hmm. So I think, uh, you know, through all of that, they really realized what they could become. They realized what they had naturally. And mm-hmm. all they do was be able to transfer you know, mm-hmm. this development from what they had now into other settings. And they did very, very well. And I'm the most proud of that, the graduation rate. I mean, they come as freshmen and stay until they're seniors. And mm-hmm. being in the Soul Review at that time, you were somebody. I mean, you is you in the Soul Review? I mean, that well, was like being on a star on a football team. And that, that gave Black students a real... A notion of being important in a camp on a campus like IU. Not mm. only did it impact on the students themselves, but it impacted on their peers who were not in the IU Soul Review. They were mm-hmm. so proud to come to something that they could call their own. When mm. the Soul Review performed, it was Black Day on IU's campus. Mm-hmm. They didn't mm-hmm. care about who else was in the house but them, and they they really could express culturally who they were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it, it provided, it was a, it was the Soul Review was an ensemble beyond itself. It, it ended up being the source of pride for the entire campus. It ended up being the source of pride for the faculty, the staff, the, just across the board. When we did our concerts, at, the concert started at eight o'clock. Around 7.15, line, can you imagine, lines started wrapping around the IU Auditorium. That place was packed. Hmm. People came from Louisville. They came from Indianapolis. They came from Garrett. 
coming to see the Soul Review, as someone pointed out to me, is like seeing a professional show. I love it. And uh, so that that's that that's what I feel. And then they grew, they came out of it one way understanding organization, understanding budgeting. You know, because they had to emulate, they create the whole tour with all the monies involved and understanding that. And I think that helped them understand how to deal personally with their finances. Or when I say mm -hmm. it costs this much, this is what we have. The bus, if you overtime, we're paying extra and we're not paying extra because they've killed me. I go back to the university, we've negotiated an extra, you know, a certain amount. Then all of a sudden we are $500 over. Who's going to pay the $500 or we're $1,000 over because of we, the bus was late. Mm -hmm. So I think they became more aware and they certainly mm -hmm. became more aware of beyond Gary, Indiana or Indianapolis, Indiana, Bloomington, because they really got to travel. They went all over. We played, I was looking, I have a, a, a list of all the places we played. We played all the Big Ten, hmm. except for Penn State. You never got, but Penn wasn't a part of the Big Ten at that time. And we mm -hmm. made several trips. I was looking at in at um, University of Illinois. We went there several times. We went to Louisville several times. Um, the other thing I want to say about that ensemble and also the others that came along, at that time on all of these campuses, they all had the same issue. There was nothing culturally a part of their everyday life mm -hmm. that was just intrinsic to the camp to campus life that they that was about their lives and their mm -hmm. culture. So. And these schools had, uh, they had money, you know, uh, culture centers were developing, Afro-Am had money. And that's why we could travel a lot at that time because all these institutions were so hungry to bring in culture and also to bring in a kind of cultural expression that could inspire their students. So, so we had a, a, a much broader impact than I thought about at the time. This is later when I'm thinking back or as I'm speaking later with the directors of the culture centers or the black student unions, they were sponsors of us. We played the, the, a lot of the, uh, we even played like the black caucus for the, uh, uh, what is it called? The music education group. There's a black caucus and they had a conference in Minnesota. So we traveled to Minnesota. Uh, we traveled to Iowa on a different occasion. Interestingly enough, the, the parents there, I guess Iowa had a, it was Cedar Rapids, it was, a, it was headquarters for a lot of major companies. And they felt when they sent the employees there that from big, big, big cities that they felt very isolated and, the, and they, were dis, they didn't really care for the lack of diversity. Mm. You know, they sent buses empty to IU to pick up the students, drive them to, to Iowa to be a part of that community and to stay in the homes of these wealthy, wealthy people and to play at the high schools and give another. And essentially, they imported the culture. And the so review mm -hmm. was the culture they imported. And they wanted their kids, you know, the white kids to interact with black kids and be around them and all of that. So we, we ended up being playing multiple roles in the lives of many, many people. Mm. And a favorite uh, performance for me were, was the, the, uh, the prisons. The mm. women's prisons in Indianapolis, we played, we played, I think we played prison every year. And then the federal prison. Now that was interesting experience for the kids up in Gary because yeah. they had to go in and you know, shake down. I mean, it's a federal prison. Wow. Boy, for them to see what life 
could what your alternative life could be like. Mm-hmm. But even in that concept, in that setting, we inspired inmates from both both prisons. And and I and I would never tell them about who they were, but anyway, they ended up coming to IU being in the Soul Review. Wow. Nobody they were that inspired. Because I remember nobody knew who this man was, the parole officer. He made his regular appearances there. And you wow. know, he was sitting, they said, Who's that man? I told you that's a friend of mine. But he was a parole officer for the in, former inmates in the Soul Review. And they were gifted. They were very, very gifted. So that's the kind of impact I think we had. I mean, it was more than that I even dreamed it would be. Hmm. But it was, it was something. I like that you framed what you did with the IU Soul Review as your, as your research lab in terms of the aesthetics of mm-hmm. African-American, African-derived culture. I think that is an important point to think about that. And it's, it really is culturally relevant within mm-hmm. African-American culture. People, you know, family, friends, they'll read your stuff, but they really want to know, can you, can you actually do this thing? Can you execute what yeah. you're over here you're <laughs> researching? Yeah. And I have to say, you know, coming to mm-hmm. IU, um, coming after this strong heritage as a performer myself, mm-hmm. It has made me audible and legible to follow in your footsteps because people are like, oh, I get it. It's a good fit because they're known for having the the musician scholar mm-hmm. um, and not just the juke joint, but in the churches. They know yeah. Dr. Yeah. Mosby is in the churches, too, which helps yeah. me as a religious okay. music scholar. Uh, so what's mm-hmm. next? Tell us about what's going on in Nashville and in Carnegie yeah. Hall. Like you're yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I try to finish up. Man, it's it's kind of wearing now. I'm getting tired. Yet. I need to take a month and do nothing. But because um, I'm at the final phases of all of these projects, and then I have mm-hmm. one major project left that I must finish. But the uh, the Carnegie Hall project uh, is uh, taking my time. Oh, a couple of things have happened on that one. Um, okay, I developed I developed this timeline on African American music, the history of its music from the 1600s to present showing the cross interactions and relationships of the various genres. In fact, a lot of my friends and others say it reminds them of a, of a, of a subway uh, map yeah, yeah. with all the crossings and in color. So but what's happened with that is that, okay, so Carnegie Hall, when I worked with Jesse Norman on a festival that she curated in 2009 called Honor, and that festival sponsored by Carnegie with you know, a lot of sponsorships, um, um, highlighted all genres of African-American music. So it was two weeks of panels and discussions and performances of all genres of music. And uh, what I was forced to be on a panel with, I was on a panel with uh, Maya Angelou, Judith Jameson, uh, uh, the guy at Harvard does the... the uh, Skip Gates. Skip Gates. And, and all the apostles. Arthur Mitchell, all, oh yeah, all the it was it was great. It was a great all the apostles. It was, great, it was a great panel. But I helped her. I was I, I was I, I was advisor to her in in putting together you know the type of programs and even the musical performances and artists and and uh, and then somehow I, oh someone she had known about my chart. That's how she got in touch with me. That chart has open so many doors for me. I'm going to tell you about the current door. I'm going to tell you about the current door. But uh, so she said, wow, this is a great chart. So they came up with this idea. 
And we would like to have this in conjunction with our with the um, festival, but we'll make it interactive. Mm. So that's when I had never, you know, gotten to the point of writing. I just did the chart, but to write about each of those genres, oh man, I had to pull that together in like eight months or something like that so they could do it. It ended up being very popular, this the chart. And and so and I didn't realize the scope of the reach of that chart until it started failing. I mean, the web started, started failing and meaning that we did it so fast. The technology was not meant to be long, long, long term. And as the technology wore, then the people couldn't access it. So all of a sudden, Carney's getting emails and I'm getting emails about what has happened to the chart. We can't get it anymore. I use it in my class. I've had it in my class for the last 10 years and blah, blah, blah. And uh, then we were like, wow, you know, this is, we, well, we need to update the technology. And I said, well, why are you updating the technology? I need to update the content. That was 2009. Mm -hmm. This is now, been about three years now. And so I'm almost finished with that project. So I thought, I said, okay, I, wanted, I want to expand on all of this. So I knew I'm not an expert in all of these areas. I was good enough to do it preliminary, you know, what I did in 2009. But now things have evolved and there's more, more detail we need to talk about. And then that's when I say, well, you know, I can't do all this myself. I need to bring in specialists who can contribute to some of these essays. I want to create new essays. And so that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And so now we're in the final phases of that. In fact, I just got two days ago the very final version of all my expansions and updates and all of that. But it's another team doing that. I want to segue to that. So that project is almost done. They have everything from me. I went through pains going through editing and they have an editor as well that comes behind me. So they're finishing up the, the you know, inputting all the information. So we're thinking somewhere in 2000, early 2021, it will be available again on the website. And I love it. Anybody. But the other part that's come out of this and Brigitte brought it to my attention. Um, Brigitte, she, she amazes me how she keeps up with everything. She does. But uh, a, a person, her name was uh, Jasmine Toledo. But she's a part of a, a DJ collective. And mm. they're very social consciousness. And uh, during this pandemic, you know, they were looking at ways to keep musicians employed. So they formed a nonprofit. And maybe it was always, I can't remember. But anyway, so she came up with this idea. She posted my chart on her Instagram, and that's where Vegeta saw it. And I guess she said the first few hours it had 10,000, and then in two days it had 50,000 hits. And then she said, wow, this is, but she says she called me up and, and she gave credit for me and she said, Dr. Porsche da da da. So and then I could tell, she called me, she says, you know, you know, I, I hope you don't mind, but I gave you credit. You know, I just didn't take the chart and, and we have all this interest in this. and. And we, and, and we think we would like to do something with it, you know, as DJs and, you know, we want to try to educate people about the music that we play. And she gave me the link to one of their shows. So I plugged in and I saw, I mean, it was really kind of impressive what they did. Nevertheless, so what came out of this was that they wanted to license the chart so they could put it on t-shirts. I love it. Which it was on earlier. And, but this time they had to have a, um, a guy who, I forget his name, but he, they sent me his website, well, well known, you know, um, designer, t-shirt designer, you know, these modern t-shirts that have like one or two words on the front. And so anyway, I just, I just closed the deal with them a couple of days ago for 
for the licensing and they're going in production love it. already and they've already designed it they sent me some samples of it you know very you know high-end type you know design clientele i think they're going after but so anyway that's that's one use of that so that's what's happening with the, the, the timeline that has had many lives. I first developed it in, well, copyrighted in 1980, but I developed it in the 70s as a teaching mm. tool. And I used it a lot when I was doing workshops like at the Schomburg and all over to help teachers understand. And it, it just became so popular. Anyway, so it has a new life now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The museum is doing very well with the National Museum for African American Music. Um, I am the um, senior scholar, um, senior scholar, let me see, and consultant, lead senior scholar and consultant. I knew there were three words. And, uh, and basically, I help lead the content design and, and approach to the storyline and, and all of that, the objectives. And, and uh, so finally, it's after I've been working with this project since 2012. And it's mm. going to uh, have a soft opening, I think, in December, January. We were slowed by the pandemic with workers and things like that. I mean, with this construction part, the part I'm working with, you know, has gone very well. There's not been any delays um, other than because of the virus. I'm now focused. I finished the exhibition on my work related to the expedition part. And, uh, and now I'm totally focused on helping the multimedia team finish. Now that's going to be very exciting, these interactives, because we had to write all the content for that. And uh, so there's five galleries and, uh, and a lot of other external stuff. I mean, it's, it's going to be out of this world. They, we've been giving tours to the board members over the last couple of weeks. And I did a, I, I curated the, the part that's called the business behind the music that highlights the music professionals, the executives and all the record labels. And uh, trying to look at ways of how do you get the, your visitors to see beyond the artists themselves, but the people who make them into artists, and, I mean, into stars, et cetera. And uh, to recognize that part of the of the uh, industry you know who's going to go and look at people they don't know you know why, why are you going to move away so i was able to pair them with an artist that they you know contributed to their success and get artifacts have you ever seen a gold i had never seen it i've explored a gold cassette 45 Mm-mm. A gold cassette, because you used to seeing gold records, you know, the platinum yeah. of the gold. I mean, uh, but this is yeah. a cassette gold. It's, it's gold and a 45 that's gold. And it is was... Is it 3D or flat? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the actual CD wow. and, and, and actual 45. And uh, it was, I was highlighting a, uh, she's the first black woman of, of note in the publishing company. I think she became VP. I can't remember the specifics now. I mean, the largest publisher. So she placed a lot of songs with artists. And so this particular song, I can't remember, I think it was a Whitney Houston. But anyway, it generated a gold cassette and single. Mm. I've never seen that in my life. And I said, wow. oh, people are going to be see. So I had to find something that would attract. Then we have Michael Jackson's gold, the guy that got him with the thriller, you know, all the double mm-hmm. platinum. So we have them. So that's how we have it. And we have with artifacts of, uh, then we have people like photos, like the guy who's behind or help 
get George Clinton off the ground, you know, in terms mm. of the industry. So we have so we have artists on photographs. And then there is an interesting photograph of a, a, a team of black guys. They were in this black music unit with a black dog on the table. Now this was RCA. RCA had that Dalmatian, you mean as the mm -hmm. um, logo, the what, the what do you call the, what do you call it? not logo, yeah, whatever logo, logo, mm -hmm. logo. And so what they did, they to give, so they they to give the departments a black identity. And the logo was, I mean, the dog was called Nipper, Nipper. Mm. So to give the department a black identity, they painted the dog black and called him Hipper. It was really so. So I had this photograph <laughs> with this dog, this black dog on the table, but I'm able to, you know, tell this little story. So that's uh -huh. those are the kinds of artifacts that I was looking for: are photographs, images that would draw. Say, what is that black dog up there? Would draw them over to learn something about this guy who was mm. very talented as, as an executive. Mm. And then the last part of that has to do with the. I say now this is interesting, and they need to be acknowledged: the creative artists who generate those uh, interesting record jackets. And there weren't that many. The one that was with Arista, he did, but he was more photographic, his, his design. But then the other four that I highlight were with George Clinton. So they're the ones behind all of these, uh, you know, these albums with these different kinds of the, the mothership and, uh, and writing these stories. And so that, so I thought having a wall full of that would be we would draw visitors into oh what is that so they go over to see and then there's this one marketing guy that came up with the whole notion of street marketing who with hip-hop well, he did it with mary j blige he did it with rose wars initially and he got a, a car a milk truck and wrapped it in gold and kind of made it like a a real gold car and went through the neighborhood driving so so he's looking at the stories as to how these guys marketed these people, promoted these artists, and he even had an elephant, you know, in, in, in one of his, what they call in-store promotions. So the artists actually mm. went into stores. They don't do it now, but, so, you know. The stores are like, yeah, the stores are leaving. There's so much about the the brick and mortar that we are missing. Yeah. And that's yeah. what I wanted to preserve. The, let them see a CD. Let them see these, you know, all these record formats. And, and that's why I was so attractive to the gold, gold 45 and, 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 and cassette. Mm -hmm. So anyway, mm -hmm. so that's that. So the museum is uh, it's, it's scheduled to open to the public if, if we can get the, the COVID-19 under control in June 2021 in conjunction with the with Black Music Month. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be the, the grand opening. And then we have a special exhibit. Then we have a special exhibit on the Fistuary Singers. Uh, that, so oh, that would be awesome. We have an area for what we're going to be called rotating traveling exhibits, and that exhibit will travel. Wow. So that's, so that's been my, my, my after IU. I it's love been it. Busy. It's been busy. And then, of course, I had to put down my book on, uh, on my, the Dutch research I did, the research okay. I did in the Netherlands on the gospel choirs. And I started, I started doing presentations from it to help me further you know, develop the chapters. And, and so I had to put that down about four, 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 four or five years ago. Uh, but I've been working with them with tours coming over. So I just continue to, to uh, get data, particularly their performances in black churches. Mm. Well, that's all they perform only in black churches when they come. So mm -hmm. that's an interesting story. Mm -hmm. 
and they'll be coming back. She's in the museum, and mm -hmm. uh, and they'll be coming back in uh, in 2022. Yeah. We already, I already had inroads for them. They were supposed to be in here actually around what is this? No, no, but they were supposed to be in here like in March, April when the pandemic. I mean, here meeting in Nashville, and uh, mm -hmm. so they're going to do pretty much the Nashville scene. And I had had all the churches lined up for them. And, so I that's it. it. So that's that concludes my. my this I, is when good. I that book. When I finish, get get back to that. But I'm going to take a break. But I am going to get that done because it's a fascinating story, and it goes mm -hmm. back to your earlier comment that you made um, about the, this whole thing of authenticity. You know, one of their CDs and some flyers they have authentic Black American gospel music. That's how they were advertising themselves. They were important. And I understood why she said it. And I and uh, and so going back to your point, is it, does it have to be a black group? And there's a philosopher, I forget his name, and he talked about authenticity in these terms. It's about learning from the source. Hmm. So you and go back to the point that you made, you are engaged with the culture. And that's mm -hmm. how she learned it from the source, engaged with black culture for 15 years, where she came from being a member in the choir to the pianist into being choir director of this black church choir on the military base in her hometown. So it's a, it's a fascinating story. And what's more fascinating, why I'm glad I got to see them perform and interview people after the performance, was getting the reactions of the blacks who were skeptical of the Dutch choir doing gospel. And so that's, that's a whole nother story in itself, how mm -hmm. we responded to them. And, uh, and they say, well, I mean, because she grew up in the church. And so then her job is, so how do you transmit it to the others, which is why she's interested in them performing in black churches and performing with black choirs and doing workshops with black choirs. This is, mm -hmm. It's an interesting story. I'm looking forward to it. I've heard about it since I arrived to Bloomington. And um, it's just another signifier how gospel music is a global music. Yeah. Yeah. You heard yeah. it from the, from the source, folks. Gospel music yeah. is a global yeah. music. Yeah. But you know, and it's taking on a new life. You know, I'm looking at, I was telling someone the other day, you talked about me. Now, see, it's interesting when I think about you, I look at your being very similar to me. When I was, mm. I mean, I mean, with your, your, you didn't care about, you know, here's a topic that you're interested in, it needed to be explored, and you explored it. You didn't care what mm. other guys thought, you're going to do this, and why are you the church? And you didn't get caught up in that. You, you saw the validity and the need to do what you did. And that, mm. that takes guts. And that's what I admire about, you know, some of the, 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 this generation. They're, they're really stepping out. They're not being afraid. And I have one question for you along those same lines. I'm scared. You, no, no, I'm curious. You the same question you asked me. <laughs> what encouraged you to move beyond the traditional boundaries of gospel music, of, of religious music research? What inspired that? And why did you do it? And, and and what was your, you, obviously you had good support. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At, 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 at Chicago. Yeah. So what, what, what got you to that place? And I'm curious about your generation now with that. Well, I, you know, it's, 
I think you know what I'm, <laughs> I actually think you know what I'm going to say, which is um, I had a reflection of myself in the classroom with Dr. Melvin Butler, um, who in many ways, I think, brings it back full circle. He would readily mention you and Dr. Burnham and the network you guys cultivated um, as huge influences on how he presented himself in the classroom as an advisor. Uh, but he not only engaged me in the classroom, he also took the time to see what I was doing in the community and affirmed those connections as I made a decision about uh, the doctoral research. And um, I, I just, I think it, it was an extension of the sort of uh, extended family that he experienced as a scholar um, emerging. Um, but yeah, I, it wasn't easy to, to mm -hmm to land on um, the topic, but um, uh, he had come to some of my presentations at the Divinity School and was just like, we talk about these issues in, in, in uh, um, office hours, why not connect your work uh, through your organization, my organization, Insight Initiative, which produces events like the Genius for Men Conference. Um, he saw how I was doing stuff uh, independently and affirmed it as a performer scholar, as a musician himself. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. So, it, but it, again, you know, I know you wouldn't position yourself in that way, but every time I encounter an interesting Black music researcher who demonstrates traces of, of getting uh, training from the source, I see the first and second wave of Black music research that uh, you are a part of, and it's, it's still reverberating. We are so thankful and so clear uh, about our genealogy, and just thank you for making us audible and legible in the academy and to our communities. Like, we enjoy doing this for our people as well, so thank you for modeling that. Yeah, well, I'm just so proud that I've seen this next generation carrying the mantle and and you know, just stepping out there, and, and you just got to do that. And and I'm, I'm I'm sure there are going to be many looking at your model, how you know you just and they say, wow, she did that, then I can do, you know. And and that's what we have to do. We have to keep it keep it going, keep it keep keep innovating, and not being afraid to step beyond tradition. That was one thing my brother always said. He says. He said, Dar baby, if you committed, I'm committed. I'll always, he said, you know, you'll always have the support of your family. Mm. So it just doesn't matter. He says, whatever you want to explore, we are here. We're going to always support you. So make this. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Well, thank you. So, sure, thank sure. you. Now, I can't wait for the next conversation. Yeah, yeah. We have to pick up, place. <laughs> we have to pick up part two with the review. From the founding yes. to how it evolved and and uh, and how yes. it, you know kept building, kept adding in staff, and again that was Herman Hudson's support. When I reached one milestone that I realized I could do, I says, okay, now now that I have the music under control, now that I don't have to worry about booking because the Arts Institute is now in place. Because before I had me and Lillian Dunlap, and I did everything that what that ten people do in the Arts Institute. And then with a separate staff doing the music, we were doing all of that. Mm. And then, uh, yeah, we get to that point, and when I was able to get staff, whew, 
you know what I mean? Full-fledged staff, vocal coaches and graduate students, you know, really knew what they were doing. And because before they were kind of coaching themselves, you know, with Lillian being a very good coach, but they were kind mm -hmm. of managing. I'm not a singer, so I couldn't help them there. <laughs> I needed to, and so I needed to, so I made it very clear, you know. Mm -hmm. But I had one person, graduate student, who, who could, and then we ended up having, like, each group had its own coach. Mm -hmm. So, uh but then the main thing I think with me that put it over the top was when I hired James Mumford, who comes from an opera background. Probably he laid out the staging and the costumes and he got to wear makeup. And though they were funny about that, in particular me and anyone, nope, nope. He said, you're on stage. You got to have a lot. So he was really, really good. And he helped them grow a lot in understanding about themselves and not be conscious of your notions of wear makeup and and excess he said on the stage it's about excess so he was really he was really good in working with them it was unfortunate you know he died a couple of years ago but he was beloved by everybody on that campus mm. in new jersey but anyway so that was the end that when i reached that that plateau with the, got the staging right and all that i said hey i had the group where i wanted it but i and i said I, i've accomplished my goal is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Amanda Luke. Music by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. Questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to SoundLore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded.